Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting November 29th. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, we'll talk about the future of newspapers with MIT professor David Thorburn, and we'll discuss the future of automobiles with Scientific American technology editor Steve Ashley. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. First up, ink-stained wretchdom. Back in September, I attended a talk at the MIT Communications Forum about citizens' media news and the future of newspapers. Professor David Thurburn is the director of the MIT Communications Forum, and I caught up with him after one of the talks. Professor Thorburn, great to talk to you today. Tell me about this series, Will Newspapers Survive? Uh, we were approached a few years ago about uh, considering the question of what, what was happening to newspapers. The topic of journalism broadly, and especially of uh, um, the quality of American journalism and the way it's been changing has been a recurring theme for the MIT Communications Forum for a number of years. So we decided to pursue a, a more systematic version of our general, of this general concern, and we focused on uh, essentially trying to create a conversation amongst working journalists, what I'll call media utopians or media visionaries who have a very uh, acute sense of how the Internet and digital technologies are transforming society and newspaper users and readers. Uh, and what we're hoping is that the three that the con we've organized it into three separate uh, uh, units. Uh, the second one completed was completed today and a third will be done on October 5th. So we do these events live. The first one was titled The Emergence of Citizens Media and it focused especially on uh, forms of journalism that are enabled by the World Wide Web and by digital technologies. Today's event, News, Information, and the Wealth of Networks, focused more theoretically on the longer-term implications of the new technologies and the way they empower not only individuals but potentially create the possibility for new business models, for how one might, how one might make... Uh, profits from the distribution of information and also on the, on, on, on the possibility of new models for civic journalism or civic discourse of various kinds. And then the final, uh, forum will actually take up the question directly. If newspapers are fading from the scene, uh, if the average newspaper reader is uh, aging and uh, the statistics indicate that the youngest people in the United States are reading newspapers less and less. If that is true, does it matter? Is there something about newspapers, about this, not about necessarily about the, what some people have called the dead tree technology of newspapers, but the essence of newspapers, the, 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 uh, moral assumptions and, and philosophic basis of the American newspaper, uh, is there something about that that is endangered as as uh, the newspaper uh, readers, as newspaper readers age, and what we hope the final session will do, will we'll try to, will we'll be to try to identify those qualities in newspapers that most uh, uh, sensible people might hope would transfer to into the into the new technologies that are emerging. One of the very great questions is whether or not uh, the sort of unifying and and uh, consensus-creating effect of traditional newspapers will disappear when we move to the World Wide Web, which is an, certainly an environment of almost infinite special interest discourse. But where on the web can you find uh, an equivalent of the great national news organizations? Uh, and the question of whether of what will happen to those organizations and whether when they make their migration to the World Wide Web, whether they will retain their character or 
alter it, it are questions we hope will be taken up in the final in the final forum. And might it be a greater loss to lose the the diversity and the uh, idiosyncratic nature of the smaller local papers than to lose the the big national papers? Yeah, that's an important question. In fact, the evidence would seem to suggest that the great national brands will find ways to survive, that they will find ways to become hybrid forms that will exist in part on the World Wide Web, in part in electronic form, in part in podcasts, in part in, in part in maybe in st- continuing for a long time in a hard copy or paper version. But the real question, uh, at least it seems to me, that, that uh, a real question that we need to really worry about is what will happen to regional newspapers, what will happen to local newspapers, if it is true, as it seems to be the case, that fewer and fewer young people are learning the habit of reading newspapers. Let me ask you something about today's session, which uh, a lot of it was was uh, related to the, the availability of citizen journalism because of uh, the technology that's available to everybody now. And and my what I was wondering was, are we still at the stage where we're just trying to understand what's going on, or are we actually trying to drive that movement in one direction or another? And the people, I mean, there are definitely people who are trying to drive it. We were talking about the the astroturf groups, the people who uh, make believe they're a grassroots group, but they're actually a, a, a major corporation or media outlet, and they're trying to do things. They're, they're trying to convince you that they're that they're smaller local people, and they're obviously trying to use this because they think it does something. But do we know that that actually does anything? Are we are we trying to understand the phenomenon, or are we actually trying to use it for something at this point? Well, I, clearly both. Both things are happening, but my, my own sense is very powerfully that the most authentic uh, moment where the, the most authentic way to describe what's happening is to say we're still in a learning mode. I mean, there are, of course, there are people who are trying to seize the new, the new, the new technologies and 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 drive an agenda with them. But the, the, there's overwhelming evidence to suggest that we're in the earliest dawn of the computer age. That we're still. It, 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 that we're in an embryonic stage, not even in, in an infancy stage yet. Uh, and if if, uh, if you think back to what uh, uh, those people who have access to computers and who live now in a kind of partly digital universe, people who are on email all the time or surfing the web all the time or have now begun to do their shopping on the web, if one thinks of what that situation was was or the absence of that situation even a decade ago or even five years ago one can understand the uh, how ra- how rapidly this technology is actually dispersing itself through through human communities so the, so the the certain answer to your question is we're still in a profoundly beginning stage in an embryonic stage in which even the nature of the technology is still in pro- in process nothing has been stabilized Right, just the use of camera phones as a way where events that are ongoing get processed without the intervention of major media outlets and get get widespread viewings by the general public and and how that's probably a very good thing in the long run. Yes, it, I think it is a very good thing. It's a very uh, remarkable example of how the new technologies can empower people and can empower uh uh, ordinary people in ways that maybe had not been anticipated when the when the when the uh, certainly had not been anticipated. So one of the great things that we're learning uh, about the new technologies is how they, in an exponential way, uh, uh, strain uh, they exponentially uh, enlarge the principle of of the uh, of unexpected outcomes of of, of unintended results. Uh, clearly, the people who manufactured the cell phones that put put a photographic possibility into them were doing it because they thought 
consumers would like to take pictures of their wives, babies, sweethearts, and whatever. It turns out that an ancillary and politically very potent use of these things is to protect citizens from unlawful arrest, from beatings by police who are out of control. It offers uh, citizens uh, an, an opportunity to record events that are happening uh, as they occur. The great dramatic example we saw in today's uh, forum was were the photographs that were taken in the London Underground when the explosions occurred. So what it does mean in a certain sense is that every citizen is empowered potentially as a, as a, as a journalist, as a reporter to the world of events that surround him or her. And that is a important thing. And uh, so another great, uh, uh, conclusion, very widespread conclusion that most people now would accept who have thought about the internet but was very much reinforced in today's uh, discourse is the idea that the, that the distinction between the professional and the amateur, the journalist who has the credentials and reports the news and the consumer who sits there and reads the newspaper, that that barrier has been breached, that that distinction is no longer nearly so powerful as it once was. And there are many, many amateurs in the blogosphere and elsewhere who are who are driving the news or are correcting mistakes in the mainstream media or are making contributions directly to the mainstream media. Professor Thorben, thanks very much. Thank you very much. One of the great things about new media is that all these talks are available on the web. There are transcripts, audio only, or video. You can listen to them anytime you want. It's great stuff. Check it out at web.mit.edu slash c-o-m-m hyphen f-o-r-u-m. Also, check out a, a listing of all the forum talks. That's at that same website. Add a slash and then forums.html. And if nothing else, one of those talks that's up at the website is a conversation between David Thorburn and David Milch, the creator of the Deadwood series on HBO. It is one of the most fascinating hours of conversation you'll ever hear, I promise. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, a cosmonaut hit a golf ball off the space station. Story two, frequent consumption of skinless chicken can actually increase the risk of developing bladder cancer. Story three, spam now accounts for half of all email. And story four, researchers are working on ways for you to recharge your portable electronic devices wirelessly. We'll be back with the answer, but first, last week we introduced the SA50, the year-end Scientific American list of 50 individuals and organizations helping technology develop for the benefit of society. This week I spoke with SIAM staff editor Steve Ashley, who handled the section of the SA50 list devoted to automobile and fuel technology. Hey Steve, how are you? Very good. How are you, Steve? I'm okay. Tell me about uh, this section of the SA50 that you were responsible for, On the Road to Green. It was uh, heartening to see some some progress in various automotive and fueling technologies and several uh, technologies that we thought were promising. The first one that uh, was pretty interesting was Iogen Corporation, a Canadian firm in Ottawa. And uh, basically, they've developed a way to make uh, ethanol, which is a clean fuel for you know various uh, car engines, etc., uh, from farm crops. But instead of making it from corn, which is subsidized and often uh, basically not, not a particularly cheap fuel if you look at the entire cost of, of, of uh, farming, etc. They're uh, looking at making it from straw, and they call this stuff cellulosic ethanol. Basically, uh, what they did was they developed an um, enzyme uh, that they use in a, quote, biorefinery, 
and they can convert about 40 tons per day of this straw into cellulosic ethanol. Cellulose is the stuff that makes up the cell walls, the, the tough cell walls of plants. So this would be something that would be um, an adjunct to the major fuel sources, I would assume. Oh, yeah. I mean, basically, we're going to be... In- uh, importing oil for a long time. Right. We're not turning all that straw into gold just No, yet. no, no. But but the whole concept is the thing that we're focusing on. I mean, there's so much cellulose out there that if you, if you could convert it to uh, something that was useful like ethanol, you could perhaps uh, reduce uh, um, your imports. And uh, uh, also, there's, there's the point that uh, ethanol burns more cleanly, so it'll help the environment as well. Let me ask you about there. There are some really big names on in this section of the SA50, like uh, Daimler Chrysler and, and BMW and General Motors, and and maybe we'll get back to those. But there are a couple of places that I had never heard before. One is called E Drive Systems. Uh, e Drive Systems and a company out in California and High Motion, a Canadian company, introduced what they call plug-in hybrid. Uh, upgrade kits, and what that allows you to do is take a Toyota Prius and actually some other cars and fit a device to it that includes a bigger battery that allows you to uh, plug your car in at night and to the to the plug in your garage and recharge the battery. And but, Toyota had nothing to do with this, right? No, this is all add-on with what they call aftermarket. So basically, uh, you spend a fair amount of money, actually. It's in the range of $10,000 for an extra battery and the electronics to do this. And what it, like I said, what it allows you to do is basically just plug the car in to the, to the, uh, grid and get cheap energy or cheap electricity, uh, at night to, uh, re-up the, uh, the battery. And that way, you don't have to burn so much gas to, uh, recharge the battery during the day. Right. And basically, we are, kind of honoring them in this section for for the concept, not necessarily because we think everybody's going to run out and get this. Well, I doubt, I doubt if anybody's going to do this behind a certain amount of uh, enthusiast uh, customers. Uh, basically, though, uh, if everyone did this and had a car that had a plug-in hybrid, it would definitely have a huge effect on our uh, oil usage and burning of oil, uh, creating uh, pollution, et cetera, carbon dioxide and things that we don't want to do. Plug-in hybrids are something we've certainly covered in the magazine, and everybody's looking forward to having them around maybe 10 or 15 years from now. But these guys just took the bull by the horns. Uh, well, you know, small companies often are the innovators, the ones that bring things to market, and then the larger companies eventually adapt the technology to mainstream products. Uh, I don't think it's too many years before you'll see a big, big auto company come out with a, a plug-in hybrid, but right now this is the best we can do. So there are a couple of new kinds of traditional hybrid. I mean, we're at the point now where we can talk about traditional hybrid yeah, vehicles. Exactly. But there, there are a couple of new hybrid vehicles that uh, GM and Daimler and BMW have uh, have been developing. You want to talk about those for a moment? Yeah, sure. Um, basically, the General Motors developed a technology called a two-mode hybrid system. And then uh, they formed a consortium with Daimler, Chrysler, and BMW to develop the technology. And and what this does is attack the issue that most hybrids make their energy savings in stop-and-go traffic. On the highway, however, basically uh, most hybrids don't do that well. The mileage goes up or goes down, I'm sorry, and uh, you only get so much benefit in, on higher speeds. What the two-mode does is allows you to grab uh, better uh, fuel savings even at the, hybr- uh, even at the uh, highway speeds 
much higher speeds that uh, normally would you would get a, a benefit from the quote traditional conventional hybrid technology. Can you explain real quick how it does that? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's quite a complicated system, but basically what it does is uh, it has two motors inside and some very complicated gearing mechanisms that allows you to recoup the normally lost energy in a hybrid system uh, by by changing the gear ratios, et cetera, depending on your actual vehicle speed. The uh, technology itself looks to be able to save about 25% uh, better than standard models in combined mileage, meaning uh, highway and stop-and-go traffic. So that's pretty good. Thanks a lot, Steve. Thanks a lot. The entire SA50 list is in the December issue of Scientific American and is available on the website, www.siam.com. Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one, cosmonaut smacks golf ball. Story two, skinless chicken ups bladder cancer risk. Story three, half of all emails are spam. And story four, wireless recharging of portable devices. Time's up. Story one is true. Cosmonaut Michael Turin waited months for the go-ahead, but finally gripped and ripped, hitting a ball off the space station. For the play-by-play, sort of, listen to Tuesday's 60-Second Science, the daily Scientific American podcast. Story two is true. A new study finds that dining on skinless chicken five times a week is associated with a 50% increased risk of bladder cancer. The skin somehow lowers the levels of heterocyclic amines, carcinogenic compounds that form when cooking meat. For more, see the news article on our website titled Bacon Tied to Greater Bladder Cancer Risk, because bacon is as well. And story four is true. Researchers are attempting to develop ways to recharge your electronic devices wirelessly. A base station would put out a magnetic field that your iPod could tap for electrical storage. For more, see the news article on the Siam website called Wireless Energy Transfer May Power Devices at a Distance. All of which means that story three about half of all emails now being spam is totally bogus because the email security company Postini estimates that perhaps 90% of all email now is spam. Spam has tripled since June because of criminal gangs who have hijacked huge numbers of computers. For more info, check out the news article on our website called Email Gangs Bombard Britain in Spam Wars. Well, that's it for this edition of the weekly Scientific American podcast. You can write to us at podcast at siam.com. Check out news articles and science video news at our website, www.siam.com. And the daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science, is at the website and at iTunes. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Thank you.